Please pray with me. Lord, you are a holy God. You are completely other than we are. You are pure. You are without sin. You are without fault. You are perfect in every way. Infinitely great. Infinitely righteous. Infinitely holy. And this morning we come and we worship You. We recognize the sin that separates us from You. That hinders our relationship with You. The sin that mars and and shatters the image of God that You've placed in us. Father, as we turn our attention to Your Word, we pray that You would teach us. We pray that You would mold us. We pray that You would make us more like Jesus. Might each one of us contemplate Your holiness and Your might. Father, I want to pray for our sister Marilyn Reed as she's struggling with just some heart issues this morning. We just thank You for her faithfulness and thank You for, just thank you for um, her perseverance. Uh, we pray on behalf of our, our sister this morning and ask that You would continue to heal her, give the doctors wisdom, but give her the strength that she needs for the ministry that You have for her this day. So please bless this time as we come before your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen. Well, I am afraid that today's message is full of bad news. I mean, really, this sermon is a portfolio of disaster. If you come home from home, you come home from school and your parents sat you down and informed you, we're so sorry. Fido was outside and was running down the road and he ran out in front of a car and that would be bad news. If your teacher is returning term papers and they're walking around the classroom and they're putting everybody's papers face up so that everybody can see the grades they got and they, you see an A-, minus, a B+, plus, an A+, plus, an A, a B-, minus. and then she comes to your desk and she places, places the paper face down and whispers, why don't you stick around after the bell and let's talk about this. It might be bad news. When the doctor has been running several tests and he personally calls you back within 24 hours and he says, can you come into my office tomorrow? Probably bad news. And whether we read about it in the newspaper, we hear about it from an official delegate, or we just get wind of it through the whispers around the office, bad news. It shakes us. It startles us awake and then sometimes shocks us back into despair. And we expect it. We all expect that bad news is going to come and and life is going to take different turns. But when we hear the bad news, it's never tranquil. But today, we're going to talk about bad news. And and though this is old news to most of us, and a, a message that we are typically all too familiar with, you need to understand that this bad news is the worst news. It is more catastrophic than any bad news you have ever encountered. Christianity is a faith that proclaims the message of good news. In fact, the the word the gospel means what? 
means good news. And so when we talk about proclaiming the gospel to every nation, the good news to every nation, what we're talking about is, is sharing the good news to every nation, tribe, and tongue, letting everybody know about the good news that we found. And though this good news is typically all too familiar to us, you need to understand that this good news is absolutely the best news. There is not a message greater than this gospel. It is more life-altering and joy-giving than any good news you have ever encountered. But in order for us to grasp the message and the magnitude of that good news, it's quite necessary that we have to personally, each one of us, not just in general, that, oh yeah, we're all sinners and we're, the, the world has fallen, but that personally, I recognize and need to recognize and come to grips with the wretched message of the bad news that is manifest in me. And that's where we turn our attention this morning. Last week, we began what we call one of our We Believe series. Theology is important because, because we, the things that we believe have been explained to us by our God and His Word. And so as we, as we examine His Word, we, we look at how He describes different doctrines throughout the text of Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament in different languages from different authors and we try to pull those things together and grab an overall grasp of, of what these theological concepts are and how they're taught throughout all of Scripture. And so every once in a while, we take some time to examine some of our, our core doctrines that the church believes. And as always, our priority is not just looking at, you know, these are the words that, that we've come up with, but our priority is saying, why do we believe this? And, and what does the Bible teach that would lead us to, to write a statement like this? Why do Christians believe what we do? And in our first message, we concluded that as image bearers, man was put here on earth to rule over and govern God's creation. You and I, all people, men, women, children, the unborn, the elderly that, that can't even remember their child's name, are image bearers and they are His ambassadors. We represent this God. In Egypt, the Hebrews heard all the time that Pharaoh was the image of God. In their theology of the ancient world, the king was the living image of the gods. And so in Egypt, the Pharaoh acted as the one who was in place, who was placed in the land to rule on behalf of those gods. He was made in their image according to their doctrines. And it was a teaching that was meant to, to keep the slaves under the thumb of the Egyptian rulers. But, but when they were brought out of Egypt and God freed them from their slavery... God challenged that doctrine and He explained to His people that all men and all women are created in the image of God. Not just Pharaoh. Every descendant of Adam and every descendant of Eve has been created to represent our Creator. All of us are image bearers. God desires for you to live in a way that you would passionately pursue a life lived out resembling the Maker who called you to represent Him. The Bible doesn't claim that we were created to physically look like God, but rather we were created to act like Him. We were created to imitate Him. To represent Him in everything that we do, in everything that we think, and in everything that we say. And that's why we express what we teach in our statement of faith, that we believe that God created Adam and Eve in His image. But that statement continues, but they sinned when they when tempted by Satan, 
In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under His wrath. And my friends, that is bad news. That's bad news. And it's right there in our statement of faith. It's bad news. Well, God declares in the first two chapters of the Bible that after God had created everything, including man, whom He made in His image, male and female, He created them, God saw everything that He made. And behold, it was very good. It was very good. In chapter 2, Moses tells us how God put man in the most ideal of settings. He placed him in a garden which was lush, lush with vegetation. It had water, it had trees, it had food. It even had access to a land where the gold was called good. And the man only had to obey one command. Just one command that God gave him. Do not eat from the one tree. Adam, the first man, was given the freedom to eat from any tree except for one. Just think about that kind of freedom. Think about the incredible provision that God had made for Adam who was set in this paradise. There was only one thing that was not good that God, God said in chapter 2, and that was that Adam was alone. And so God formed from Adam's side a partner, a perfect complement that completed Adam in every way. And so God gave Adam a companion. When we come to the end of chapter 2, he's demonstrated how he desires to bless his creation and to give good things to all of the, his creation, but especially his masterpiece, man, both male and female. And he desires for us to live in perfect relationship with Him, our Creator, a perfect relationship with Him in which we're fellowshipping with Him and we're worshiping Him. We can reflect His magnificence and we can experience that, the greatest joy because we are fulfilling what God made us to do. Alright, I told you this message was about bad news, but so far I've talked a lot about good news, haven't I? Everything's good, very good. So what happened? You may be familiar with the text of Genesis chapter 3 already but let's refresh our memory and so if you would turn there with me genesis chapter 3 if you're looking for genesis it's right at the beginning of your bible it's the very first book turn over just a couple pages and we turn to chapter 3 verse 1 where, where we're told that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the lord god had made and he said to the woman did god actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Now, now this, and this is the account of Adam and Eve, but, but I want you to participate as we read through this. I want you to participate and just consider the pattern that we're going to see. I want you to participate in some self-reflection as we move along because there's a pattern here that you're going to see displayed in your own life over and over and over again. When you face temptation, it's going to come from three different sources. You're going to face temptation from Satan and his minions when they try to tempt you and, and lead you into sin. Sometimes the temptation that you, that you encounter comes from the world. Satan has nothing to do with it, but that's the world that you live in. And thirdly, sometimes the flesh that you, that you struggle with is going to lead you into temptation. Temptation is often a result of spiritual attack, but often it's merely just a result of the fallen world that we live in that's putting pressure on you. But oftentimes... Your own flesh pulls you into sin just by feeding you those desires that go against the will of God. And those are the three directions that that temptation 
is going to come from. But whichever source dangles that forbidden fruit in front of you, the most common trick always starts with, did God actually say? Did God really tell you that? Is that really what the command says? Are you really not supposed to do that? Or, or maybe you're just overreading a little bit or overthinking a little bit. You, you see, temptation begins by questioning what God said is really good. And then the second line of attack is to twist God's Word. Did God tell Adam and Eve that they could not eat from any tree in the garden? Is that what the command was back in chapter 2? What was the command? What did God tell Adam when He first gave him this command? You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? No. Just one tree. And it started with, did God say? Just one tree. But the serpent got Eve to, got Eve to question the circumstances that God had put her in. And then he twisted God's own words. Because it wasn't any tree in the garden. It was just the one tree that God had said, no, not this one. And the woman said to the serpent, verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, now here's the second phase of the attack. And you're going to face this in your own temptations. Wherever that temptation comes from. Because you see, the serpent questioned God's Word and he twisted it, but then Eve, what's she trying to do? She thinks she's going to argue her, way out of, argue her way out of this temptation. And so she starts rationalizing with the serpent and, and trying to have a conversation about, well, you know, you don't quite got it right, and so let me tell you what I think you know, all this means. And rather than just quoting the Scripture and going right to God's command, what He actually said, she tries to think her way out of the temptation. You ever been there? Struggling with something? You know it's wrong? And, and then what happens? Well, you know, I think, you know, God, and, and we don't just start quoting the Scripture that we know in our hearts and that we memorized when we were in Awana or that we should have memorized when we were in Awana. And, okay, I can't remember it, so I'm just going to go look it up. And I mean, what does God actually say? And so we start kind of twisting things and arguing our way out of it. Listen to the entire command from chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, the problem is, is that when she starts rationalizing with the temptation, she starts skipping parts and adding to what God said. Satan already done that, had already done that before, but she corrected it and then she does the very same thing. She reasoned that they could eat of the fruit of the trees, but, but it's interesting that in chapter 2, God did not limit them to just the fruit. I had never really noticed that before. Maybe I'm overreading it myself. But chapter 2, he, he doesn't say don't eat of the, don't eat of the fruit, or, or, or you can eat, eat of the fruit of every tree except for the one. He says you can eat of the trees. And so maybe the leaves and the roots had a place in the picnic basket as well. I'm not, I'm not sure about that, but she does add to it and says the fruit. But then she goes on and she leaves out a part where God talks about good and evil. She doesn't mention evil and, and kind of generalizes it as the tree. Temptation is going to work that way with you and with me. It will always make sin look better than the evil that it is. It's going to call it by a different name. It's not sin, it's just a mistake that I made. It's not evil, it's just... You know, I, I kind of went my own direction for a little bit. And we redefine it and we, we minimize 
the offense to our God that it really is. And then finally, in her attempt to rationalize with the serpent, Eve, Eve ends up adding to what God said. God told Adam that in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But Eve tacks on, neither shall you touch it. Did God say that? Did He say don't touch the tree? Now, that might have been a good idea. I mean, Adam might have said, I'm going to stay away from that one. I don't want to get myself in trouble and tempt myself. But, but God didn't say that. And so she's putting words in His mouth. We do the same thing. Rather than, rather than fight the temptation with God's Word, we either ignore God's Word or we twist what He said. But the serpent, in verse 4, said to the woman, you, <laughs> you must surely die. For God knows. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And thus the tempter will seek to cause you to question God's goodness. Does he really want what's best for you? Does God really? Is he real, does he really have your interest in mind? I, I um, shared with our youth group a while back. You know, I, um, I, I love playing with Legos. And Minecraft is kind of a new obsession. I had to quit it because it got to be too much. I mean, it's just fun stuff. But Legos, I mean, you get this box. You know, in this box, there's this castle. And, and, I, and I open the box, and there's some instructions, right? Telling me how to get the, the most fulfillment out of this castle that I'm supposed to build. And so what do I do? I toss the instructions, I, I'm going to build the Eiffel Tower instead. Does it work that way? Why? That's not what the Maker made it for. He gave me instructions so I would know exactly what I'm supposed to do. But if I get another idea of what I think it should look like, it, it's not going to look like the Eiffel Tower when we're done, is it? And it's certainly not going to look like the castle that the Maker intended for it. Or if I've got problems with my Honda, sitting outside. I, I've got a, a, a manual at home for my Ford, uh, what, what was our Ford van, whatever, minivan. We call it Grand Caravan. It's been that long. So we have this Grand Caravan and I have this instruction manual. It has four wheels. It has an engine and it has a roof over the top of it, seats inside. And so if I've got a problem with the transmission in my Honda, all I, it's the same stuff. I'm going to go read the manual for my minivan that I don't have anymore and certainly that'll be good enough. Why not? It wasn't made by the, the ones that designed it. And so, and, and we do the same thing with sin. God says, look, I've, I've given you instructions for how this is supposed to work. I made you. And I want what's best for you. And if you do it the way I instruct, you're going to experience joy in this life. You're going to find fulfillment as you reflect my magnificence, as you bring me glory. That's what I made you for. I made you to worship me. But when we start substituting other things and putting in our own rules and twisting the rules, we go down this path that leads us into sin. Well, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now men, lest you start doing what some of you are already doing, what are we saying? Yeah, good job Eve, right? Where was Adam? In the text, where was Adam? He was with her. He was with her. And it sure sounds to me like he was with her and he witnessed this. 
Adam was right there with Eve. He was the one that had directly heard the command from God, and he should have been the one to pipe up and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Put a fork in it, Eve. We're done here. But Adam stayed silent, and it seems that he abdicated and let his wife do all the thinking and all the talking. And when she ate, she gave some to him, and he ate. If you read the rest of the Scripture, who's held accountable specifically for the sin? It was Adam. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. That's usually what comes next, isn't it? After the sin, we try to hide our shame and we keep it a secret. And and then when it's found out, we blame everyone else for making us do it. It's her fault. It's his fault. The devil made me do it. So, you can see where all the bad news got its start. And, And thus, the man and the woman who had been placed in the garden, they were the very ones who were created in the image of God to act as His representatives, the representatives of the Creator of the universe. He called them to be the living image of God. And they more perfectly represented Him than anyone throughout human history other than Jesus Christ Himself. And the image was shattered. They ended up misrepresenting Him and became enemies of God rather than st- uh, in- instead. And rather than reflecting His magnificence, they went to war with God. The image was shattered. Now understand that the bad news, it gets worse. We believe that in union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice. In other words, every son of Adam and Eve has a sin nature. You sin. I sin. He sins. She sins. Romans 3.23, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when we talk about this sin in our lives, we believe, that there, there, we believe there are two different aspects of, of how we sin. We sin by nature and, and we sin by choice. And so if you'd allow me just a, a few, a few um, minutes to throw out a few theolo- theology words. Uh, we, we don't, now understand, we don't use big theological words and terms in order to show how smart we are. That's, that's not the point here. I want you to learn some of these things. I want you to be able to converse with them, especially as you see these words in Scripture or hear people talking about them in the church or in, 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 um, in, in, in culture, wherever, wherever it is. But, but we don't use these big theological terms in order to show how smart we are or to prove that we're better than somebody else who hasn't even heard of the words. But we use certain terms so that we can summarize what God has taught us in Scripture. And, and oftentimes, there, there's some huge concepts, and, and rather than have a five-minute conversation anytime I want to express that thought, um, we, we pull that five minutes and we, we pack it into one phrase. 
so that when I'm having other conversations and deeper conversations regarding these things, I can use those terms and all of us represent all those thoughts that would have taken us five minutes to explain. That makes sense? And so sometimes these big words, they sound scary, but really we're just trying to summarize some bigger ideas that are going to help us to engage in other conversations. For today, I'd just like to expose you to, to three of those phrases, if I will. Uh, the first phrase I'd like you to add to your vocabulary and to sharpen how you understand it is the phrase inherited sin. How many of you have heard of inherited sin before? Is that something that's a little bit familiar? All right, a few of us. Uh, we talk about inherited sin in the Bible. The Bible teaches us that we are all sinners because we inherited this sin nature from Adam and Eve. It's in our DNA, so to speak. Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, where he says, "...among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and," here it is, "...were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." We sin because we have inherited this nature from our forefathers. You got it from your parents. They got it from their parents. They got it from their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, they became sinners. And then every one of their children inherited that same sin nature and has been passed down through the human race to all men but one. Another phrase that we use to describe a related concept is is the phrase total depravity. Now, oftentimes people hear that phrase and they assume a lot about what it might mean. And they assume that it means that all of us are as evil as we could possibly be. But, but that's not entirely accurate. Uh, Charles Ryrie, a, a man much smarter than I am, he summarized this idea really well a few decades ago. And so I'm just going to let him say it. Total depravity does not mean that everyone is as thoroughly depraved in his actions as he could possibly be nor that everyone will indulge in every form of sin, nor that a person cannot appreciate and even do acts of goodness. And so so total depravity is not saying that a person can't recognize something beautiful and something good and actually do good works without becoming a Christian. There are a lot of people in this world that go and do good things. Would you agree? Have you seen people do good things? You go, wow, that's really admirable. I really like what that guy's doing. Or wow, us Christians should be doing some of that too. That's pretty cool. Right? Been there? Seen that? And, and, and there's a lot of people out in this world that aren't as bad as they could be, and they're not as bad as the guy next to them when you compare some of the sins. And so it doesn't mean all those things. He goes on and says, but it does mean that the corruption of sin extends to all men and to all parts of all men so that there is nothing within the natural man that can give him merit in God's sight. And so this is the bad news. Because Adam and Eve ate from the tree, they took on a sin nature. And you inherited that sin nature just like every other human being in human history. And that sin nature permeates every part of you. There's not some part that has remained pure, that's remained untainted by it so that you can somehow save yourself by just focusing on that one part of you. It doesn't mean that you can't do good things. But because of your sin nature, you are totally unable to come before God with anything good that you can say for yourself and say, look God, look what I've done for you. This will save me. You're guilty. And no work that you do or word that you can say can justify you in the presence of this holy God. We inherited a sin nature and we are totally depraved because of it. 
Now, here's why, where most of us say the obvious then. What, what's the next thing based on the passage we just read in Genesis 3? Thanks, Adam, right? Been there, done that? Uh, he blew it for the rest of us. Good job, Adam. Good job, Eve. And if we don't stop ourselves there, we oftentimes go on to say, if I would have been in the garden, uh-huh, I wouldn't, uh-huh. If I would have been in the garden, things would have been a little different. And that's where I'm going to introduce you to one more phrase. And we call it imputed sin. All right. Now, there's one that's a little bit more unfamiliar, right? And there's a lot more discussion regarding this one among theologians. For those of you who have studied this phrase before and you know the conversations that uh, are, uh, take place among Christians and how we understand this, let me just first say, first take us to the key verse where God teaches us about imputed sin in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Here's what God says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, we, we know that part, right? Where did sin come from? Through Adam. And death through sin. People have all died since then, right? Adam died spiritually right when that took place. And so death came from sin. And so death spread to all men. And here's the last part. Because all sinned. We sinned in the garden. Now what does that mean, right? Um, now I know there's a lot of discussions about the meaning of that phrase, all sinned, and, and, and how that takes place. But let's just back up and consider what it means at a minimum. At a minimum, what, what Paul's saying here, I believe, is I am held guilty for Adam's sin. Not only because I inherited that sin nature and because I'm totally depraved, but because Adam was my representative. He served as a representative for all of us. And when he sinned, we all sinned. Perhaps we can go so far as to say that if, if I would have been in the garden, I would have also eaten from the tree and blown it in the same way. However you understand this verse and, and the nuances here, when it comes down to it, every single one of us We've chosen to sin. And thus, every single one of us have chosen to go to war with God. And I don't want you to miss that. As a, as a person, as a human being who has inherited a sin nature, who is totally depraved, you have chosen sin. And you, as a sinner, are at war with the God of the universe. The very God that you were supposed to be reflecting His magnificence. The very God in whose image you were made. And that is bad news. However, there's more bad news. Again, in union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under His wrath. See, as Christians, we believe in a righteous and holy God who is perfect in His justice. And when He judges sin, He judges perfectly. And because He's holy, He must judge all sin. Every sin. Sin as a whole. Now here's what the world says about that and how we sometimes justify it. All, all sin? Oh, come on, come on. All sin? Every sin? Could, certainly God wouldn't send a person to hell and condemn them for eternity for some minor infraction or offense. Come on, really? I mean, there's some people, yeah, I can see Him doing that, but 
There's some good people in the world. It's not fair that God would condemn me. I'm not that bad. I mean, look at Craig. I'm not that bad. That's far from the truth, by the way. (laughs) We're both fallen from grace, aren't we? I have high respect for Craig. Otherwise, I wouldn't use him as an example all the time, right? But all this reasoning minimizes how awful sin is by its very nature. And statements like that where I would even try comparing myself with somebody else just shows how little we grasp how horrible sin really is. Let me see if I can put this into perspective at the risk of maybe offending some of you. I hope it's not too soon here. Most of us are aware of a murder that took place just three miles from here. Just three miles from where you sit today. It was sick. It was disgusting, wretched. Just the mention of it probably makes some of you, you wretch. And, and most of us have had thoughts about the kind of justice that ought to be brought down on whoever did something like this once they're caught. Right? The Bible echoes those very thoughts by God's very own edict. When God set up human government and expressed one of its purposes for government, He said, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. For whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And God, for God made man in his own image. And, and that's said after the fall. And so we still bear the image in our lives. And, and God holds a high priority on human life. And so God Himself instituted capital punishment to be carried out, not just by anyone. I I don't get to go out and say, you did this, and so I'm going to take your life. It's to be done within a system of justice that He set in motion. But here's my point overall. We we all accept how horrible this sin was, don't we? For everybody that knows what I'm talking about, we, we, we hear it and we go, this was wrong and horrible. And there are others like it, and we can easily accept that hell is appropriate punishment for sins like these. But, but what about sins that I judge to be less? What about sins that I judge to be less nauseating? Certainly, I'm not as bad as that. What about sins that I commit? What about my white lies and my secret lust and my unrighteous anger toward another person? It was Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Everybody hear that before? That's, that's an old one. It's been around a long time. Ten Commandments. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, this is Jesus, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fires of hell. And again, verse 27, Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Everybody hear that one before? It's on the list of ten. Been around for a long time. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
He's figuratively saying, no matter how painful it is, get rid of what's causing you to sin. He's not telling you to tear your eyes out. What's his point though? Every sin. Every sin is an affront to a holy God. And I want you to get get this. Put yourself into this. The same disgust that rises in your throat as you thought of the murder of the innocent is the same disgust that God the Creator, the same disgust that rises in Him regarding any and every sin, but multiplied infinitely because He is infinitely holy and perfectly just. And how would you feel if we caught the wretched murderer? How would you feel if we caught him? They proved it. DNA evidence, everything. This is the guy. And they said, oh, that was really bad of you. But you know, you've done a lot of good things. We, we saw what you did for that lady walking across the street the other day. And so we're going to send you back to your home. Just, just don't do it again, okay? There's a sense of justice that rises in us, isn't there? There's a sense of, no, that's no. Some justice has to be served. Ridiculous. Absurd. But just as absurd is an infinitely holy God who is perfect in His righteousness that would excuse or look past my sin and say, uh, not a big deal. It was just a small sin. Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 2, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to His works. Again in Ephesians chapter 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sins of disobedience. That's us. And in summary, Romans chapter 6, for when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regarding righteousness. But what fruit were you were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. A couple verses later. For the wages of sin is death. All sin is under the wrath of God and this is bad news. No sin will be left unpunished. No sin will be left without the wrath of God being poured out on the one who bears the guilt. 280 years ago, there was a sermon preached by uh, probably the greatest American theologian of United, uh, not just United States, but American history. Uh, a great pastor. His name was Jonathan Edwards. He wrote a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you're one of my kids, you had to read it for American literature. Exciting sermon, right? He spoke these words of warning. And I'm just going to quote him because I don't think I would dare to preach like he did, maybe. He was bold. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. 
It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself. Nothing to keep you off the flames of wrath. Nothing of your own. Nothing that you have ever, ever have done. Nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. And this is bad news. The image has been shattered. Though we still represent Him, we do so marred by sin and marred by our rebellion against Him. Without a Redeemer, we would be left without hope, without life, without salvation. I appeal to you. I appeal to each one of us Do not dismiss the bad news. Don't just sit here and go, well, I'm just going to hope it's all going to work out. And maybe it's not like Pastor Jeff's describing. Maybe God's Word is just using figures of speeches. I'm going to hope for the best. Don't, Don't do that. Your eternity hangs in the balance. You must consider the awfulness of your sin and the offense that it puts between you and God Sin is not just a concept that generally makes the human race at war with God. You are at war with God. Without a remedy, without some sort of salvation, you are at war with Him. And His wrath is upon you. Sin is personal. And every one of us must give account. Until you come to grips with the horrible reality of the bad news and understand that it is the worst news of all, you will not be able to understand the good news of the Gospel. When we return to this series in a few weeks, we're going to give our attention to God's saving work in Jesus Christ more fully. But it would be wrong of me to end the proclamation of God's Word in which we proclaim the good news and just leave it with the bad news, right? God God tells us this again in Romans 6.23. He says, For the wages of sin is death. But what's the second half of the verse? But? The the free gift of God. You hear that? The free gift of God. You owe a debt that you can never pay. It's as if the IRS came back to you and said, you... (laughs) Tax day was this week, and you you missed it by two days, and you owed a thousand dollars, and the the interest rate is ten thousand percent a day. That's light compared to our debt to God, our the debt of our sin. The wages of sin is death, not just physical death in this world, but an eternal death in which we are separated from Him for eternity but there's a free gift that He offers to you. Free gift. What does that mean? I don't pay for it. It's free. I just just have to accept it. I just have to receive the free gift. If somebody gives you a gift for Christmas, you can leave it sitting under the Christmas tree until whenever, next year, the year after that. Um, 
My wife brought me a gift the other day from my in-laws. Uh, it got put in a closet last Christmas. Which was, oh, guess what? Look what we found. It was a free gift, but it was never received. I could have put it back in the closet and left it there for a few more months. But God has given us a free gift, and that free gift is eternal life. But it comes not by your works. It comes in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is bad news. We have all sinned. And the wrath of God is poured out on that sin. This is not only bad news, but it's the worst news which makes the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ not just good news, but the best news. And it needs to be called out throughout the course of human history. It needs to be called out by us. God must judge because He is infinitely holy and perfectly righteous. But He is also infinitely filled with love for His creation and for you. His love for you. So what does God do? What is a God who, who has to punish sin? What does He do when He says, but I love this person. I love them. How do I resolve this? How do I punish their sin and still save them from eternal, an eternal lake of fire? How can He do such a thing? And His solution is that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ. He loved you so much that God said, I will take your place. He must judge sin, and He does so and still expresses His love for His creation for you. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this, my friend, is good news. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God by becoming our sin. He became our sin. Just as Adam's sin was imputed to us, when Christ died on the cross, our sin was imputed onto Him so that we could have His righteousness. You get that? There's a great trade going on. It's a free gift. He, took, he became your sin so that when you place your faith in Him, he gives to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so when you stand before God's throne one day and He says, why should I let you into heaven? All of your sin was taken care of on the cross. And when you stand before Him, does He see that sin anymore? Not if your faith is in Him and Him alone. What He sees in you is the righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself. You cannot be good enough to earn God's favor. You cannot earn a right standing with Him. Only God Himself could take our sin upon Himself. And that is exactly what Jesus did for us on our, did on our behalf on the cross. It's a free gift. And the only thing left is for you to receive it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Do you believe? If you haven't, that you accept that gift today and receive eternal life from Him. Father, we thank You for the incredible gift that You've given to us in Your Son, Jesus Christ.
we stand before you, sit before you today, and we recognize that you are a holy God. And we fall so short. We fall so short of the holy standard that you have set. But thanks be to God that you have given to us your Son, Jesus Christ, who paid the price that we couldn't pay. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for my friends here today. If there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, that hasn't put their faith in you, or just has questions about what all this means, I I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. That today would be the day that that wrath is lifted off of them and that they receive eternal life. Father, if there are those of us who are believers and there's sin in our lives, might we recognize the wretchedness the darkness of it. Might we make it right our relationship with You by confessing that sin, agreeing wholeheartedly how horrible it is. We love You. We adore You. We thank You for the provision that You've made for us in Jesus Christ. Amen.